Hi, everyone. Welcome to the MBA Insider Podcast. I am your host, Al D, and the author of MBA Insider. This podcast is for career-driven professionals looking for advice on how to grow their careers by leveraging the skills, experiences, and knowledge gained from an MBA degree. In each episode, I'll give you a look into the business school experience, along with practical tips, career advice, and real-life stories to help professionals grow their careers. Welcome to the MBA Insider Podcast. My name is Al D. I'm the host of the MBA Insider Podcast and the founder of MBAschool.com. Today, I am excited because I have the pleasure of having with me Jenny Blake. Jenny is an author, a podcast host, the author of two books, most notably, Free Time, Lose the Busy Work, Love Your Business, and Pivot, The Only Move That Matters is Your Next One. Jenny also has two podcasts that mirror both of those books. And for me personally, as someone who has had a huge impact on my own life and career journey, I remember buying Jenny's first book, Life After College, uh, when I was fresh out of college in the workplace and had no idea what I was doing. And that book, as well as some of the work that Jenny has done over the years, has been a huge help at various points in my career. And so I am thrilled and elated to have Jenny on today uh, to talk about both of her books, but also to talk more broadly just about her own journey, as well as how both of the books that she's written and the work that she does can really help people who are really trying to create their own lives as well as careers that allow them to spend time on the things that matter to them. So with that, Jenny, first off, thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited to dive in and chat. But as listeners know, I always love starting with a warm-up question. And my warm-up question for you is, so because I've uh, listened to your podcasts and I've read your books, I know that your father is someone who's had an impact on your life. And I think at various points you've even said he's actually been a big help in terms of bringing some of the books to life in terms of being an editor and providing feedback on a number of books. But I would love to know from you, could you share a lesson that your father taught you and how you've tried to model that in your own life? Oh, well, thanks, Hal. It's great to be here. And it's been so fun to be in touch since the early LAC, Life After College days. My dad has been integral to all three books and actively editing, giving feedback. If I had to pick one lesson... He's really, we call it gloves off editing. I mean, I've learned so much from my dad and we always love going for walk and talks. When we lived in the same area, now we still talk every week and just about over an hour about life and work and politics, whatever's happening. But specifically as it relates to the books and that translates to language more broadly, if ever I would say in my writing, I believe, I think he would write in the margin we know it's your book. And eventually that got abbreviated to W-K-I-Y-B. There we go. (laughs) W-K-I-Y-B. We know it's your book. As in, when you are on a stage, when you are writing a book, even on a podcast, sometimes some of us soften our language. I think, I guess, I suppose, well, I believe. We know it's your book. We know you're the one talking. You know, you don't need to say, I think. It actually just waters down the language. And by the time you are writing a book or creating a piece of content, own it, be confident, say it. We know it's yours. You don't have to soften it with these types of words. And I, I it, he's right that I was doing that sometimes out of a, a lack of confidence, maybe just, well, I think, well, what I believe, but it, just say it, be bold. That's a lesson I've learned from him. I love that lesson. And I think you're right. And as I think about that for myself, I can definitely, I know I use that as a crutch sometimes. So uh, I think you're absolutely right, though. You got to own it. And what a great, what a great lesson to learn. Okay, so speaking of books, let's start with uh, one of your books, Pivot. So take me back to launching Pivot. 
And why was that book so important to you at that point in your career and, and journey? Well, outside of launching the book, you know, what did you really do to bring Pivot in the world? T- take me behind the scenes of that. Well, when I launched Life After College, the first book in 2011, that was the pivotal moment of leaving my job at Google. What's interesting is that two years later, I kind of rode the adrenaline of that. Two years later, once again, I was wondering what's next. And this time there was no paycheck funding that exploration. By the time I started working on Pivot in 2013, it was actually called The Human Pivot. That's what the proposal was that I showed my agent. And I'll never forget, my agent wrote at the top of the proposal in pencil, you sound unhinged and circled it and gave it back to me and said, I don't think you're ready to write this book yet. You're still known as the life after college person. You haven't established your expertise in any regard about careers or pivoting. And by the way, nobody was using the word pivot in a career sense at that time. It was all about the lean startup and how startups could pivot. But I was wondering what would happen if you applied that to people and to our careers. So by the time a year later, I wrote the proposal, it was called the pivot method. And I was able to reverse engineer that I did launch a global drop in coaching program at Google, I had trained thousands of people there, I had seen a lot of the best and the brightest and how challenging it can be to navigate internal pivots within a company and also leaving what I now call the big comfy shade of the Google tree, you know, the big brand, it can be really hard to walk away from that. So when Pivot, the book came out in 2016, it was about helping connect the dots. And that's something that it's not always easy to do. I'm not an author that I pick one book and I'm going to talk about it for the next 30 years. Life After College is a specific transition in somebody's life. We zoom out. Pivot is about navigating what's next continually and more frequently than previous generations. And then free time is about optimizing what's now. So I do think that if you're going to pivot a lot in your career, that's okay. You got to just do a little work to connect the dots for people and say, because even now people will say, pivot to free time. What's that about? How do these ideas possibly map together? But they do because they have me in common and they also have this underlying nature of how I like to approach things with systems and structure and a little bit of spirituality too. You know, it's interesting. I don't necessarily know sometimes if we, and when I say we, I mean my, particularly my audience, uh, many of whom are going to business school to, in fact, pivot. But in 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 those environments, in that culture, it's very common to to pivot and to think that that is a normal thing. But I don't necessarily think sometimes we have a remembrance or an appreciation for what you just said in terms of not too long ago. These concepts were not necessarily things that were well known within the context of career development or career planning or things that were widely accepted. I think there were a lot of cases they were happening on the margins, but they hadn't necessarily made it into the the mainstream kind of thinking and the dialogue and discourse on what career development could be or what career development could look like. And so just an appreciation in a moment, thinking back to when this came out in 2016, because I think we have absolutely come much, much farther of a way in terms of how we view those things. And and how many of us choose to kind of think through our own kind of decisions in our life. But to make Pivot a little bit more real, why don't you take me to the beginning of COVID-19? So we'll say around March 2020. And I've heard you talk a little bit about this before, but what happened to you in your business when the world shut down? And how did you respond? And I guess maybe make this a little bit meta. How did you feel like you put Pivot into action at that point? 
I know it really puts it to the test. The irony of 2020 is that in 2019, I decided I am going to make 2020 a real tipping point for this book. It will have been out six years or five years at that point. And I really want this book to kind of hit the mainstream. And so I paid for airport placement. I signed up to attend the TED Talk, which was more money than I've ever even contemplating spending on one conference. I did all these things, put all these things in place. And when the pandemic hit, it was just so interesting that all of my worst fears about being an entrepreneur, what could possibly happen, like a recession, I was always prepared for that. Pivot is meant to be counter cyclical as well, that if a recession hits, we're all going to be pivoting. And as you said, even getting an MBA, it, it is a pivot. Every, everybody going to graduate school is mid pivot. And you're also putting yourself in the path of pivot for the opportunities that will come on the other side of graduating. And so when the pandemic hit, I'd been in business, I'd been self employed 10 years, I never even imagined a worst case scenario that would involve all my speaking gigs getting canceled all at the same time, pretty much in the same week, for years out into the future. That I could not have predicted. That was a reminder to me that sometimes our worst fears, they're kind of pointless. And I do say, not pointless, but I do say in Pivot, something my friend's mom says, which is don't suffer twice. And Buddhists call it the second arrow. Suffering twice is that we live in fear and envision our fears and we have have anxiety about what could go wrong. And then whatever's going to happen is going to happen. And then then we're in the moment dealing with that. So why suffer twice by starting with our thinking? And that that was one lesson that I took is how funny and how cute all my previous business fears had been (laughs) to what actually unfolded. And then I also always take a, a somewhat spiritual perspective in the sense that I talked about this on the free time podcast, when the financial tides recede, I try not to freak out and panic and go rush into the ocean and say, oh my gosh, somebody give me work. I'm freaking out here. I actually like to look at the shore. What has washed up? What little trinkets are there? What seashells? What new little critters in my business? Like, What insights can I mine from the financial tides receding if I don't panic and if I don't try to fill that space with, with what was before. So for me, I took it, I could have really just gone hard on pivot and, and like many people would say, maybe I should have, but for me, it was this time where all of a sudden I wasn't on the road every two weeks. I could actually pause and reflect and recalibrate for myself, just as I was advising everybody else to do. And the thing that was really making my heart sing was tinkering behind the scenes in my business systems and operations and working with small business owners in my private community, which I'm so happy you're part of. And finally, I gave myself permission. What would happen if I doubled down on this? uh, Once again, I had to kind of leave the comfort of the corporate paycheck, even though this time it was on the outside as a speaker and say, what happens if I actually share publicly all the little tips and tricks that I've discovered? through self-employment. And that's what became free time. There's so many nuggets I could pull out in there, but a couple that come to mind. So so the first one, very similar to your concept of the second arrow, one of the things that someone once told me and I've reflected on a lot is you 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 can't borrow trouble. You, I mean you can, but it, it can it's it's really <laughs> at least when I do that, it 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 paints me into a corner of a lot of suffering and a lot of thinking about things that I don't necessarily need to be thinking about. And the other thing I was going to say to that is if you're going to think, if you're going to always think about the worst case scenario, you also need to think about the best case of like, okay, well, what if everything could go wrong? But on the flip side of that, what if everything could go right? 
And and so those are two kind of hacks that I have for myself when I do get into those moments of of catastrophizing or or you know potentially worrying about all those things that potentially negatively could happen, remembering the inverse of that. And then the other thing I was yeah, gonna, and it's yeah, like the inverse ahead. can be just as likely. That's the exactly. same question I told myself leaving Google. I was so worried. What if I fail? But exactly as you said, what if it goes right? So I started to ask, what if I earn twice as much in half the time? It was like, isn't that just as viable? And, and I think what sometimes what we don't realize is if, if we can take care of ourselves and our body, we're fully equipped. Like you have so much creative energy to put toward problem solving. And I think the big secret of a lot of this is that we secretly enjoy the complexity of figuring these things out. And mm -hmm. it's just so rare that I don't know. Disasters can strike. Absolutely. And there were many businesses that weren't able to just like put a positive spin with government shutdowns and stuff. But for the most part, I, I totally, I love that you said the same thing of just saying, what if it goes right? What if it is me? What if I can be part of the small percentage of people who can make it doing X, Y, Z? Yeah. So when I look at companies sometimes who have to go through similar things, right? You're taking COVID as an example. Well, actually, maybe not COVID because they were forced to maybe change. But when when companies are going through change, oftentimes it can be really hard for them to let go of the thing that they did to embrace the new thing that they're going to do next. And that could be for a lot of different reasons, right? I'm curious, what was that process like for you in terms of having to evolve away from pivot, something you put so much energy, time, investment, ideation into, to going all in more into what you were doing next? How was that process for you in terms of thinking about that and 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 having to at least devote some mental energy to moving on from something that you had invested so much time and effort into. Yeah, I I felt really complete with pivot. That that's one factor in my decision. As in I felt that I had really given it my best energy, my best thinking, my best solutions. The pivot method is a framework that clients like Google still use now as a global career development framework. And so I felt, of course, I, I could have done more. And in a sense, I saw this fork in the road that with pivot, the ecosystem I built was actually so mature that at that point, all I needed to do was go get on a bunch of sales calls and try to sell licensing and train the trainer to companies. And one of my big, my Achilles heel as an entrepreneur is I much prefer building than sales and growth. And at one point I even considered selling that part of the business because it was fully built. And maybe someone did want to come in as an operator and just focus on sales and growth. For me, I, I ultimately didn't go that path. Now I'm kind of seeing my entire portfolio as a media company, books, podcasts, and related products. Um, but the other thing that I'll say in terms of, of being willing to move on is I find I, I follow my energy. And so, like I said, with pivot, I felt really complete. I felt like it's, it's all built, it's all there. And, and I will keep getting the word out about it, but I was not going to write pivot 2.0, which I think that even my agent and the publishers wanted from me. <laughs> I wasn't going to just write Oh, the post-pandemic pivot, you know, something that's like, I, I didn't have that much new to say. I always try to focus on evergreen content that stands the test of time. And I even stand by everything in pivot now, even post-pandemic. The only difference would be that a lot more of us got pivoted and we're not pivoting as much by choice. It was just we all had to adapt. And then with following kind of my energy and going into something new, I think that's another important aspect of change is not just running away from something. I didn't start free time because 
I was bored with Pivot. It was because this new idea was like a magnet and it was so strong. The magnet was so strong, pulling me forward, lighting me up, making me feel really excited. Every signal, every time I would take steps in that direction, it felt really thrilling. And so that's what gave me the confidence to at least put Pivot on the back burner while I could get this new thing off the ground. And now I've kind of juggling both. And life after college, I just feel that that rolls up into Pivot pretty much. It's like, if you're graduating, you're pivoting. Great. <laughs> Welcome to the Pivot Fold. The book is still helpful, but I'm not that interested in speaking only to an early 20-something audience. Sure. <clears throat> I love the point you made, though, about running towards something, right? Running towards something that lights you up and gives you energy and that excites you. I can definitely relate to that in terms of my own journey to becoming a full-time solopreneur and entrepreneur in terms of having a day job that I, I did enjoy, but also having this other thing that was super exciting, super interesting, and consuming my mind in a good way outside of normal working hours and to the point where even though it was in my own head a little bit of a risk to take that leap it was something i was genuinely excited about and that i was i was running towards and while there were certain aspects of my day job that were challenging it wasn't as if the day job was something i was running away from it was more that there was this other exciting thing that was pulling at my heartstrings and pulling at my mind and bringing me and pulling me in so we've teased it a little bit but let's talk about free time Let's talk about that journey to discovering it and what is it and what's the idea behind it and relate that to the book too as well. Yeah, tell us a little bit more about free time. Sure. So free time, similar to pivot. With pivot, I was really focused on pivoting being a mindset and a skill set So and a method. The mindset of being adaptable and navigating change, which we've all gotten a black belt in pivoting the last few years. And I also wanted to provide a really practical method and process for people to grow the muscle of navigating uncertainty. Similarly with free time, free time is of course like, oh, what do we do when we're not working? It's a noun, but I also see it as a verb and a skill. How do we continually free up time to do more of our best work? So the book is systems and strategies for in nerdy biz speak would be operational efficiency, but really systems and strategy to create more free time. And I wrote it for small business owners, but I do think that many more people can benefit, leaders of any size organization, managers who feel bottlenecked or burned out or buried by bureaucracy. I call those the burdensome bees. Just it's ways even in our personal lives that we can free up time, get out of the weeds. I just feel like we're all so inundated by information and overwhelm and inboxes that whatever I can do to help set some of that time free is really, really rewarding. Yeah. And I think, I mean, the way that I would describe it is, while I, I do believe it's for those audiences, anyone who believes that time is an important asset, which a lot of people do, can really benefit from, from reading it. And when I read the book, something I took away from reading it was around the topic around expectations and really about understanding the expectations that constantly or unconsciously are set for yourself and then taking the time to figuring out if they continue to make sense for yourself, for your business, for your own priorities, for your own ideas of how you want to spend your time. And I'd just be curious, does, does, is expectation something that you thought about at all when you were writing the book or, or how did that come alive for you? Yeah, I love this line, expectations are resentments and waiting. That expectations, I mean, you and I were talking about this before we hit record. I find it interesting that so much business literature because I suppose the nature of running a business is that you're supposed to grow. That's just what you're supposed to do and get that revenue graph up and to the right. I'm sure they teach this in business school. 
But this mindset in business of sort of growth at all costs or bigger is better just doesn't resonate for me and it doesn't work for me. On the other hand, people sometimes denigrate the idea of a lifestyle business. It has this weird tinge to it. And, you know, maybe I need to just admit that, yes, I, I think I my business is a lifestyle business, but I don't see why every business shouldn't be. I don't see why anybody at any level in any size organization should be miserable or sacrificing their health for the sake of the bottom line. So I really wanted to approach business in a different way and say, as you mentioned, expectations. What if we shift our expectations of ourselves and the business? And also, there is no reward for hard work when you're a business owner. You're either getting it right or you're not. We talk about product market fit. It's like no amount of hard work if you have the wrong product for the wrong market is going to make you successful. So it's not about time anymore. When you run your own business and you have time autonomy, there is no linear correlation to how much time you put into the business to what you're going to get back out. It, it's really about working smarter. And it takes more strategic thinking to work fewer hours and still earn abundantly. It's actually harder to do that than it is to just grind it out and try to grow that way. At the same time, you and I were saying, like, I don't really set goals in my business. And so maybe that's here's, you know, heretic to say, and, and people could tell me I'm a bad business owner. But I don't know. I kind of feel like whatever I have is just right. And I, I do have, have ambitions to grow the platforms and everything. But specific numbers have never motivated me. And they've never, they never pan out. It's like sometimes I earn much more, sometimes I earn much less. Like I just find that aiming for those numerical metrics, they're only part of the equation. I would so much rather aim for overall freedom, autonomy, meaning, impact, things like that. It's, it's interesting. I don't know how much you've been reading lately, but there's one of the debates and dial or, uh, or that's going on right now is this concept of the anti-ambition worker and and just people who are choosing to slow down or to maybe uh, give a little bit of less of energy or interest at work because they don't want to climb the corporate ladder or because they have had a really rough two and a half years and are are trying to slow down and are just trying to do the work that is outlined in their job description at the with the least amount of effort to, to kind of get by. And even just the framing around it, around this idea of it being quote unquote anti-ambition is really curious to me, if only in the sense of, while you know, I certainly understand why many of us, at least in the corporate world, are on a specific work structure in terms of traditionally showing up in the office, working nine to five, things like that. Each individual human being has their own interests, has their own priorities, has their own T ways in which they think about their own free time. And so it's just kind of interesting to me that the debate is being framed as anti-ambition when in reality, if we take what you and I are talking about to be true about people taking the time to set their own expectations for themselves, like no wonder people are going to want to use their own free time in different ways. And perhaps it's not necessarily a bug that people are choosing to push back and use time in new ways because they have this newfound agency. Perhaps that's really what it was supposed to happen all along. We just haven't really, we didn't really figure it out until the past two and a half years. I don't know. I'm just throwing stuff out there. I love that. I love what you're saying. And it's true. I think sometimes anti-ambition mode is reactive, comes from a place of burnout, which I've experienced sure. many times yeah. in my career, where I actually needed to draw those boundaries and say, I need to be less ambitious right now. I need to care less. I need to do less because it's almost survival mode. And our friend Kathy Onetto in BFF yes. has a podcast mm -hmm. called Sustainable Ambition. And I love yep. how she talks about 
choosing how ambitious you want to be given the current season of your life and how much energy you have. That It's not a steady state. Ambition isn't some steady state thing. Oh, we have a certain amount of ambition and it's just we go like a machine at that level of operating. And to your point, I also love thinking about ambition as people who are not just like selling their soul to a job or their business are actually quite ambitious about their freedom and about pursuing a meaningful career. So it's just shifting the ambition a little bit of where you put that attention and energy. And I think we were talking about our friend Kay, who you introduced me to, uh, and you were saying like, you know, he goes surfing every day and it's like, I really respect the ambition to live a full life and have hobbies and exercise and have a partner or spouse and have pets or kids or whatever the thing like that's actually so ambitious it's much more complicated trying to figure out how to juggle all of that than I'll speak for myself when I was like my single solo self living alone in an apartment I could hustle in a very different way than I have available to me now because now my ambition lens has expanded to also being a good wife and dog mom and family member and all the rest. Yeah. And I, I, what I love about that is, well, a couple of things. Number one, I, I was actually on Kathy's podcast. I don't know if it's out yet, but by the time this airs, but we actually talked about what you just mentioned. And one of the things we, we talked about was this idea about how LeBron James, arguably one of the best athletes to ever play the, ga- the, the game of basketball, sleeps like 12 hours a night and in the off season spends millions of dollars on rest and, and getting healthy. And so if you're telling me that one of the, literally the best at his game is intentionally investing time to rest and to refuel and recharge so that he can be better when he steps out on the court, you know, that that's a really good example of how someone who is incredibly ambitious is not necessarily trying to fire in all cylinders at all hours of the day because he knows that that is just not sustainable. And so I I look sometimes to sports as a good mental model in certain things to help understand how using that free time in other ways will actually make you better at whatever you want to be better at, whether that is your career, your job, or anything else. And the other thing, which I would love to talk about as well, is just, I I think you're right in knowing and and articulating that during the day, any given workday, there are so many distractions and there's so many things that just make or really increase the cognitive load that we, we have on ourselves. And I really appreciate the fact of bringing this idea of free time and also just slowing down to think because a lot of times it's very easy to, to equate checking something off your to-do list with, with making progress. When in reality, I think a lot of times being able to slow down to think can sometimes be a much more effective activity with whatever it is you're trying to work on in order to actually achieve a specific outcome. But I think a lot of times mentally, we confuse ourselves with doing something and checking off the to-do list as, as actually making progress when, when sometimes it's really not. Yeah. I mean, there's so much there. I, I think just questioning, I mean, even just going back to sleep mm-hmm. for a minute, yeah. some, I mean, I think each of us can know, and that's part of our responsibility to figure out how much sleep do you need to thrive? For me, if I get six hours of sleep, I'm just actually almost wasted the next day. I can't do anything. I have no motivation. I don't think clearly. It's terrible. And if I get eight or nine, I'm really happy, which is not not always the case. 
there are, however, there are people and there's a small even percentage of the population. I think it's 5%, some really low number who genuinely do not need sleep. Like they can get four hours a night and they feel just fine. I think Bill Clinton was one of them. I kind of sometimes wonder if my mom is one of them because she goes to bed really late and gets up really early. I wonder if Gary Vee is one of those people. And you kind of have to know that that person's set point, like they may simply have more energy or need less sleep than someone else. And it doesn't take away <laughs> my, my friend Tara McMullen in her new book that's going to be coming out, What Works, and she has a podcast with the same name. She kind of asked that question, do we really all have the same 24 hours as Beyonce? Yes and no. <laughs> you know, Beyonce has a whole team and a lot of resources and she can delegate a lot more. So I think it's it's just also being realistic with the energy we have. And to your point about not just sort of robotically checking tasks off a list, but actually asking, just like Gay would say, what's the one thing that's going to move me forward the most today? And giving ourselves permission to make trade-offs about what we're willing to be bad at. I think that's also really important in today's day and age. We have an inbox for every single social media platform. And I don't know. I, that's part of the reason I'm not on social media. I don't want seven inboxes. I really don't. I, I don't even, you know, mm -hmm. I hardly can keep up with one inbox, let alone seven, let alone a creative, original, expansive thinking and content creation. There's just no way. So I'm willing to be bad at social media and miss certain opportunities and not have, quote, as big of a platform. I'm just okay with that because I know that the trade-off isn't worth it. I don't want to tick the box of posting little bits and bobs on social. I don't want it. Don't care. It doesn't help me. It just distracts me. Right. Not interested. And I figured that out for myself and gave myself permission that that's okay. And I think that everyone else listening, you got to do the same. And in, in free time, I say it's sailing the sea of shiny shoulds. You got to yep. notice when you're sailing that sea of shiny shoulds and say a shiny should is when it seems like you, you should do, you know, it's, what everyone else is doing, or it's how to get ahead or how to be successful. Is that true? And is that true for you? Yeah. Yeah. So I think something that will probably make it real for the listeners uh, actually comes from your friction and flow framework. So could you talk a little bit more about what that is and, and how you actually use that for yourself in terms of to maybe what you're, you were discussing, finding the things that you would rather focus on versus the things that you're going to intentionally ignore or potentially even quote unquote be bad at because there are other things that you want to prioritize instead. Sure. Yeah. The free time framework is the diagnostic is what you said, noticing where are you in friction and where are you in flow for any area where you're experiencing friction, dread delays, you feel drained by something. It's just, it's on your mind, you're kind of losing sleep over it. You're spending too many brain cycles on it then you can apply the free time framework. Align, design, assign is a process to move through to reduce friction and move you more toward flow. So does this area align with your energy, your strengths, and your values? Maybe it fell out of sync. Maybe you need to realign it. You need to pivot a little bit. You need to shift in order for it to align with those three things, energy, strengths, and values. Then you move into design. What's your ideal outcome from this project or area of your life? What's the ideal impact on you and everyone around you, the broader community? And design a process that resonates, that feels easeful, that feels joyful. So before you ever delegate or figure out who can help with that area, you've thought it through A to Z of what would be smooth and joyful. 
And then the assigned stage, who will do what by when, is really a call to action for all of us to try to delegate more. And that can include delegating to software and automation. I'm a big fan of that. So I talk about delightfully tiny teams and the fact that my first team member is software. And I have all kinds of services. We're so lucky. We have all these services available now that can automate so many things. And you've probably heard me say it a million times, Al, but I always talk about the example of putting household supplies on subscription on Amazon for the basics. When you do something like that, you do it once and you don't have to think about it again, which is very different than just, oh, I made a process 5% faster, but I still have to remember when things need to be refilled. No, set it and forget it. That's, I think, a dream system. I love that. And I love I love that example. And I think the free time framework was super helpful in terms of helping people think about where to focus their energy and how to make sure that they're using that time on the right set of activities that makes sense for them. And even really going on the journey to actually thinking about what those are. I think that can be so valuable, whether you're a business owner or whether you're just thinking about how you're working each and every day. One, one thing I do want to talk about is my favorite quote from the book. And so I'm going to read it. And then I would love to hear your thoughts about it and just your general perspective on it. And so the quote says, this book would not exist if I not found a way to reduce friction and return to creative flow again. Freedom, joy, ease, surrender, and serendipity became my new guiding success metrics. Now I know deep within my bones how non-negotiable it is to be present in my business and life. I know what enough looks like, what is worth pursuing, and what isn't. I avoid chasing the hungry ghosts of money, fame, power, and control what I call the four horsemen of business ambition apocalypse. So when I read that, it just, it really, really hit home for me. And so I would love to hear you talk more just about that and, and your thoughts on that. I love that you read that. It's so fun to hear what jumps out, what resonates. You read the right at the end of that excerpt is the business ambition apocalypse. And a lot has been written about money, power, and fame as these kind of hungry ghosts. You can just chase them and compare yourself to others. We could even add social media metrics to that equation. Maybe that goes under the fame bucket. The fourth one I added in is control because sometimes as well, we feel like we need to control everything, whether in our career, in our business. And that actually, I think for a lot of business owners, control is something challenging to let go of and ease up on a little bit and to realize we can influence so much in our business and the work we do and how we get paid and things are going to happen that are out of our control, exactly how we started this, talking about the pandemic. So being willing to surrender a little bit and being willing to show up and do your part and do that consistently over time, I call it the long, art of, the long arc of creativity, as in not everything you do is going to be perfect. And you might start out really awkward. I'm seven years into podcasting and I'm still awkward half the time. That's okay. I just keep hitting publish. And, and that's really where I try to stay focused is, as I say later on, eyes on your own paper, not comparing. It's so easy for all of us to get into that compare and despair trap. And so I try to just remember, again, like what I have is perfect. It's what I need and more can follow, but I don't need to obsess over those things. And just to stay focused on pivot, I say, thinking about high net growth and in free time, high net freedom. How do we hold those two values. And as long as we're learning and growing and we have meaning and autonomy and freedom and purpose, we're on the right track. Wow, that was beautiful. And what a great way to to wrap that up. Jenny, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I've so enjoyed uh, chatting with you about Pivot, about free time and about 
everything else in between. Uh, if people want to listen to your podcast or check out your books, where should they go or where can they find you? Well, thank you so much, Al. It's a real treat to be here. I guess I should start sending people to a link tree, which I do have because then I'll have everything in one place. But for now, you can search for Pivot with Jenny Blake wherever you listen to this or Free Time with Jenny Blake. And the website, if you want the free time toolkit, that's at itsfreetime.com slash toolkit. Hi, everyone. LD here. And thank you so much for listening to the MBA Insider Podcast. If you liked what you heard, make sure to head over to Apple Podcasts and to write a review. It will only take 15 seconds. I'd also love to hear what you've been listening to on the podcast and any suggestions you have for how we can improve. Find me on LinkedIn or head over to mbaschooled.com backslash podcast.